gozaimasu. It's Zach Lingli Chichi. I am so popular. I'm here with、uh, not one, but two very special guests this morning.、Uh, who are you? We are Sam and Gian of the Twink Revolution podcast and online magazine. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> thank you so much、here. for coming.、Uh, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> um, well, I mean,、uh, r- right now, I think、uh, we are. We are enjoying a San Francisco evening.、Um, but in general,、uh, generally, I think what we're trying to do is spread a bit of kind of gay levity into a, a materialist left,、uh, which sounds self serious, but we, we do not take ourselves seriously at all. We're, we're gay shit posters who decided that、um, it was important that people maybe start taking some, some Marxist thoughts seriously. Well, thank God for that. And、uh, <laughs> why are you following me? I mean, we're, I think we are always、uh, delighted to see anybody out there on,、uh, you know, doing, doing the struggle.、Um, doing the work. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're doing the work and、um, you've, you've developed, I think, a, a, an amazing sort of、um, online presence. And, you know, we were compelled, we were drawn in. Oh, you're too sweet. I literally <laughs> am sweating with joy right now. Thank you so much. <laughs>、um, so, yeah, can you kind of explain the Twink Revolution podcast to anyone who may not be aware of it so far? Yeah, so we're a gay Marxist podcast hosted by a twink and a post twink.、Um, Gian's the post twink. He's calling me old.、Um, I'm a post twink. Oh my God. <laughs>、um, And basically, we discuss cultural and political events in kind of a snarky, hopefully funny, sassy way, but also very Marxist in its analysis of material and historical struggles. And that sounds, that sounds like a sort of a dry theory podcast, but I, we, that's sort of、yeah. our, our also, intention always is <laughs> like, like we, we are Marxists in our, in our private lives, not just our professional podcasting <laughs> lives. And、uh, right. the idea is not to. Not to Ram theory down anyone's throats. I think the idea is that we we feel like we、um, we've got some analysis <laughs> that at least helps us to understand the world personally, and and hopefully that makes for some compelling podcasting occasionally.、Right. Yeah, I think that we kind of both come from like the post Red Scare wave. <laughs> at least I know I do. <laughs> where、um, just like kind of having like an you know angrier, more accessible, like not really so. Moralist, like left voice on a podcast is becoming you know more popular. So I'm really thankful that、uh, you two are here with a gay perspective as well. Much needed. Yeah, it's all a little, little、um, aggressively heterosexual out there, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. God.、Yeah. Um, I just listened to Come Town for the first time in my life after like kind of like doing some research and I was like kind of like sh- shook. Like I was taken aback, honestly. <laughs> The, those, those boys are, are I think,、uh, misunderstood. They are, they are sensitive, beautiful souls, and I will not, I will not hear a word said against them. No, I,、uh, I loved it.、Um, also, one of them is hot. What's his name? Nick. Nick is, yeah, Nick the... is hot. Yeah.、Uh, no, it's like, a, it's,、oh. yeah. no, it's a well acknowledged fact that Nick is hot. We,、uh, we actually got to see、um, Stavros Helkios in,、uh, in Oakland. Live, yeah, live stand up in Oakland、uh, not long before quarantine started, I guess. It must have been like January, February, or something like that. Yeah. Oh, the, the last things、days. I went to. Wow.、Uh, so, <laughs> uh, another thing I'm curious about is kind of like how did both of you get involved with like Marxist thought? Do you want to start?、Uh, I'll, I'll start because it might be that Sam's story might be a continuation of that.、Um, <laughs> So, I, I, was a, I was, I guess, a sort of a precocious internet、um, user as a young teenager and fell in with a, with a bad crowd、um, that turned out to maybe be a good crowd. In that,、um, 
I think as as many teenagers do, I sort of became infatuated with certain ideas like libertarianism. Um, yeah, and, sure. And, right, exactly. You know, it's sort of there's there's a as you're perhaps like grappling around in the world for a greater understanding and trying to understand the the contradictions you're starting to become aware of. I think it's easy to go for the pat solutions. And I just happen to be lucky enough to have sort of befriended some some sort of older teenagers online who had done a little more reading than me. And when I sort of went through that phase, they were able to sort of take take me out back and give me a spanking um, <laughs> or just, just sort of refute the core essence of it and be like, hey, you should maybe read this. Um, and I think that got me into first the sort of the Soviet aesthetics, the edginess of all this like, fuck you, dad. Uh, yeah, of but course. that was, and it's hot yeah. too. <laughs> it's hot. You know, exactly. It was all very appealing. And the idea that I could sort of like hang a Soviet flag on my wall, very edgy, um, was all appealing when I was, you know, maybe 14 years old or something. And then that was a good impetus to actually get me to read some, some, you know, kind of dry and boring books that turned out to have a bunch of the answers I was maybe starting to look for. Uh, and so, that's where it started. Um, yeah. And so I, I just, I read, I read and read, um, became very enamored of some of these ideas, drifted away from some of them, got very animated by the Iraq war, oh. um, as many did, um, and and kind of found some connection to some radical organizations in, in New Zealand where I grew up, but uh, found them rather wanting. They were, they were sort of extensions of a kind of strange um, remnants of the left opposition. And then mostly left it alone, honestly. I just kind of went and lived my life and, you know, went to college and did all sorts of shit. And uh, and, then, and then thankfully sort of a resurgent American left formed and I found found some of this old stuff rattling around in my brain <laughs> was relevant again. Yeah. So mine's a little different. So I had a six-year career in the libertarian NGO think tank complex. That was uh, Young Americans for Liberty, right? Yeah, so I started in Young Americans for Liberty in my freshman year of college, and then I became involved in the international organization Students for Liberty, where I became um, a coordinator and was the first coordinator in Wisconsin, which is where I'm from. And then I became the Midwest director on the national board the next year. And then I worked two years in a think tank in San Francisco or Oakland, which is where I moved from Wisconsin to the Bay Area. And then I think it was after three months of living in San Francisco, I'm already like changing my political. I was kind of like an anarchist of some sorts. And I meet um, Gian um, through a friend at a party, a, a circuit party. I like <laughs> we're classy <laughs> at like 11 o'clock at night. And I don't yeah. speak to him the rest of the night. I'm like, not very lucid. I'm on some substances and um, we exchange um, Facebook. So that's what I do at parties. I, cause I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in the right mind to talk to anyone about stuff. And we got drinks in the Castro and he was like, I was like, Oh my God, he's a tanky. He had like a Bolshevik DSA <laughs> party. And I'm like some like anarchist, like individualist at this point. And I'm like, oh my God, well, I don't really care. But I, we talked and it turns out we just kept talking for months and months, mostly because I hated my job and I like talking politics and liberals are awful to talk to. And at least awful was yeah. like willing to like engage with my ideas, whether right or wrong. And after a while I was like, well, I'm Ron and I'm a <laughs> Marxist now. And we launched a podcast and that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
How beautiful. Right. When you say that, like, <laughs> liberals are bad at talking about politics, I really can't, like, underline that enough. And, like, since moving to Japan and having, like, my English-speaking sphere, like, radically reduced, everyone here is, like, kind of, like... Uh, I hate like classifying people like this, but you know, like that kind of like brand of like Obama, Hillary, like liberalism, right? Uh, oh yeah, and it's very awkward to chat with. It's like kind of like a dead end. So I mean, I th- I think um, what what one has to start to realize is these people don't really have a politics. Exactly. Not, at least not as not as we would conceive of it, right? I mean, we they they talk about political things. But there's rarely any investment in it. I, I feel like um, so much of what we can spend our time doing is is trying to break through walls with the with the belief that there might be something deeper lurking underneath those politics. And there's not. It's 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 a, it's a pure um, contentment with the status quo, mixed Absolutely. with um, yeah a, a sort of a legitimation theory of what it means to do things like elections, electoral politics, and stuff. Which is not to say those are all bullshit. It's just like. <laughs> They, these people don't care whether it's, you know, whoever's in power for these people. It, it doesn't matter. Their 401k goes up in value and their shitty media job continues to pay. It, it, right. it doesn't matter. How to exactly. steal um, money from Wall Street or kill Gaddafi, you know, the important things on the liberal left. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah, when you said that you were in uh, Young Americans for Liberty, I was like just tickled because I did um, the joyful world of uh, student government when I was an undergrad. And, Me too. Um, yeah, the other campaign had funding actually from YAL, and they even paid. Um, they had petitioners who would come out and try to get like students to vote for them, yeah. like with iPads on the street. And we like dug in, and like they had been funded like thirty thousand bucks by YAL to like get those like conservative kids elected. Amazing! Amazing how sort of. Um massively funded astroturfing organizations uh just always have like the best resources isn't that strange yeah like, where is <laughs> this on the left <laughs> we don't have enough money we're spending all our money on ketamine so we can't like try to get like <laughs> communist children elected into student gov well i mean i don't know and that you know you, you are you are preaching to the choir in that regard but it turns out it doesn't take that much to uh start a start a podcast and a, a little online <laughs> magazine and you know try and try and hit back yeah, here we are. Let's go, girls. Yeah, we're <laughs> doing do it. it. <laughs> um, so on that note, I thought I maybe might bring up our first topic for the day. Um, and I'll kind of preface this with that. I've noticed on the very nuanced and per- politically articulate website Twitter that uh, lots of the kind of new left like teenagers are becoming quite enamored with a certain country by the name of China. Um, <laughs> and... I have only been getting really like deeper into, you know, Marxist and communist readings like for the last like two or three years only. Um, I just finished reading um, On Practice and Contradiction by Mao like a few weeks ago. Uh, But it's been very interesting watching this dialogue about China come up again. Uh, And I'm kind of curious like what your stances and thoughts about the current state of like China as a communist nation, how it's going? Like, what do you kind of think about that? Well, I, um, I, I think uh, I would want to, I would want to preface any any reflections on China with the kind of the um, of uh, uh, 
you know, a remedial session on the um, the concept of like critical versus uncritical support. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think it's a, it is a, just a really important concept for, for us as, you know, leftists in general, but particularly as Marxists, maybe to, to like remember is to say, um, uh, I would say I have, I have a kind of critical support for, for China. I, um, I think there are many things to admire about the Chinese communist party, about the current state of China as a, as a nation state and as, uh, you know, an emergent world superpower, um, they have done some incredible things in terms of lifting people out of poverty, um, creating a, an incredible industrial base that is the world's productive capacity. Um, and, you know, they, they've uh, reformed what was essentially a sort of a colonized outpost, um, you know, that, that had previously been a, a feudal society into an industrial superpower where many more people are enjoying a, a very high standard of living. Yeah, um, and the rate all that's happened has been really remarkably fast. Absolutely breathtaking, yeah. So, so you know, and then, and then um, you know, I, I would say that anybody who really wants to focus in on the flaws of China is welcome to, but I would always ask them what tone of voice they're doing it because uh, it, it can so easily pass for uh, baiting into a new Cold War. And that's what most of this rhetoric feels like. So I would say, yes, there are many issues with China as as a country. There are many issues with every country, not to do any whataboutism, only to say um, we we can be critical of many aspects of it, but we don't therefore have to engage in a, you know, a war footing against uh, against China, whose main project is largely domestic, I I personally think. Right. So the big thing that's really important to point out that the right wing likes to take credit for under capitalism is, oh, well, China, when they liberalize some of their markets, that shows capitalism works, but it was under the hold of a communist worker state, at least in my opinion. And they lifted out 850 million people from absolute poverty. Now, that basically is the main reason the Millennium Goals held by the United Nations actually achieved their goal. It was China. Everywhere else kind of did a little bit, but China was the reason they hit the goal of like massively destroying poverty. 800 million um, people lifted out of poverty in what, 20 years or something? 20 years, yeah. It was just astronomical. Yeah. And there's actually for people who are critical, like, oh, well, this liberalization has created a new capitalist class. That's true. And there's definitely contradictions in that um, policy. Um, but they have a list of like billionaires who are known for like fraud and like tax corruption. And it's called the pigs list. And many of them end up getting like arrested and um, some do get the death penalty, which I don't support, but like it shows a vastly different um, system than the U S or the UK or any other imperialist capitalist um, country. And I think it's very important to point out there's clearly many flaws, but I think we can't deny how vastly China has improved the conditions of the working class in such a short time. Certainly. And I think one of the most impressive parts, I mean, even beyond like the <laughs> the change out of poverty that they've shown on such a global, like a massive scale, is their land ownership and their politics around like owning a home is like really truly socialist in a way that I think you like don't see in almost any other country where you really do like rent out your 
land from the state. And right. I think it's a really impressive, like, how many institutions they've successfully, like, pushed closer towards, like, real socialism, if you want to use that language. Um, and I really liked your point, Gian, that uh, critical uh, critical support is what's important because I'm seeing recently, like, really an abandonment of all nuance when it comes to discussing, like, any state politics, especially, like, on the internet and on Twitter. It's all kind of, like, breaking apart. And you get, like, this dichotomy of people who only 100% support everything that China does. Or you get the other half, which is that they just completely buy into, like, the imperialist propaganda of, like, whatever they read on, like, the Guardian or the New York Times and start decrying it completely with no exception. Right. Well, there's a credulity to all of that, right? Which is to say that if the world were reducible to what is unequivocally good and what is unequivocally bad, then we would never have any complexity in the world, right? There would never be any conflict because we could just point to the good ones and the bad ones and go, ah, that's all all good and that all bad. (laughs) Um, The world is not so simple. And neither is China. I mean, every country is a result of, um, you know, it's it's historical development that brought it to the point it's at. China is no different. It has many contradictions. There are, there are, um, you know, existing structural limitations. There's existing power structures that must be contended with, and doesn't mean that's going well necessarily. But that's um, very different from then taking the sort of New York Times editorial page line, which is to say. You know what sounds pretty good? A thermonuclear war with China. Yeah, it's you amazing. Also, yeah, it's just like amazing how the general like media consensus is like war with China is good. <laughs> like, let's do it. Right. You also made the good point of like the housing policy. So China has the highest number of um, people that actually own their houses. It's 90 plus percent of the population own outright their housing. And so often when people are being attacked on the socialist left, um, it's, oh, you don't believe in um, private property, but we make a distinction between public or personal and private and housing is an aspect of personal property. And China shows very well, all these people own their housing, so they don't need to sh- worry as much about the material need for housing security. Like 90 plus percent is astronomical. Like if you like, compare it to the U.S., it's just like nothing's even comparable. And I I would assume the homelessness rate's vastly smaller as well. Um, Just ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, it is ridiculous. And it's pretty, I don't want to say amusing because it's more tragic, but uh, homelessness is such a massive problem in the United States. And you're both in the Bay Area, so I'm sure you see it. Like you really see it? Yes, um, we we uh, we li- we we live live and experience uh, the horror the horrors of what late capitalism can visit upon yeah. a person every day. I remember when I first moved here, I had to take an Uber through one of like the high density neighborhoods of like homeless people, where all the like um, centers are, and just seeing the streets full of homeless people, and I was just like, I'm not a very emotional person. I was like almost brought the tears. I'm like, this is so unfair. I've never seen this before because I'm from Wisconsin where if you let that happen, everyone just freeze to death and die. But here are just shanty towns under every single highway and yeah. it's just normal. Uh, I've, got, I've got to say, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've been to Beijing um, and I've been to some parts of Mexico and um, the only place where I thought, I think the, the level of sort of human depravity that 
a society can visit upon people that I've seen was Tijuana. Um, it's it, it it is incomparable. I mean, it's just it is un, unlike anything else. I think, uh, and and it's so sad because it's it's so quickly normalized. As in, this is just you know those who made wrong choices or whatever. <laughs> Screw that. Yeah. The moral argument of like the entire like American work system is that oh you can just work your way out of anything is like so deeply imparted on people that they really don't even question it and it like warps their entire like mindset around entire populations of people. It's so frightening. Right. Yeah. Ugh. I mean I think that's a thing that I find an issue on the left is so much of the left is restrained into kind of this newer like Grad, or like they're in college so they're still kind of developing in the world and i'll say in victims might well like you're very idealist in the way you view the world but once you kind of enter the workforce and especially in a city like oakland or san francisco where the neoliberalization of the government and the economy and society is just so visible that i was just like i just accelerated in my path towards like the left wing um, and just realized everything I thought was true was just wrong. And is debating someone who disagreed. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm on the wrong side. And I actually Are we the baddies. <laughs> I, I was part of the baddies. And I felt I don't feel I don't feel horrible. Like I was I'm a vegan and I used to like hunt animals. So I'm like I'm used to like dealing with like past wrongs, like whatever. Um, but I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I was I went to a CPAC conference and. Um, I just walk in and there was like war propaganda to like go to war with China and like Iran and Venezuela. And I was like, where the fuck am I? Like, this is horrible. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, in Japan right now, um, I think in a lot of ways, Japan is like even more like frighteningly neoliberal than America. And even though we have like a lot of like um stronger like socialist based concepts like our healthcare is really good homelessness is not um nothing like it was in the states that's for sure um but politically like it's definitely slipping back towards um kind of an imperialist mindset the prime minister is like trying to revise the constitution uh as to allow like militarization again there's a lot of like racist rhetoric towards like chinese and korean residents uh, and then also people's uh, trust in the work system is just so sprawling. And it's kind of like wrecking people's lives. Like, I don't know, people like really devote themselves to their work here. Well, I, I mean, um, I I feel like in any sort of system which is failing in its um, in its promise of the kind of the or, or like the legitimation theories that give rise to the kind of societies we live in, in in the US or in Japan is the idea that sort of hard work will will be its own reward um and and unfortunately <laughs> if if you take any sort of marxist line on this right you'd have to know what the lie is inherent in that but yeah. but that doesn't mean people aren't going to keep trying to make it work i mean they they they've seen their parents uh succeed sort of under this system and and um, they they have been conditioned their entire lives to believe that you just work that little bit harder and you too can join the the class of the the deserving those who are allowed some material security and those who can have comfort and dignity and uh, all those wonderful things. Unfortunately, as we know, profits accelerate and wages 
naturally go down even as productivity goes up and therefore that's just not available to us anymore we i mean we are we are living in the end stages of these these systems and unfortunately what what we kind of know about a failing capitalist state is that it it either progresses through into something better by which i mean you know socialist in character or at least maybe something social democratic yeah or it collapses <laughs> Well, or no, or it goes fash. Like, and I and I mean uh, that you know yeah. people overuse the term fascist, but if but you really literally. regard fascism, yeah, I mean fascism is kind of the just the face of capitalism under duress. And I'm I'm plagiarizing somebody there. I don't quite remember who. Um, hopefully, some some one of your listeners can tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I mean, it's, it's the idea that like um, what what happens when capitalism is under a lot of strain or stress is that suddenly a lot of the illusions we had about free markets and the government just being the sort of neutral arbiter of industry that all goes out the window and suddenly um you know the the fact that you have armed you know an, an a special a special armed gang um who's there to essentially guarantee that property rights are respected and that workers can be disciplined appropriately and suddenly the, the government apparatus is around ensuring that profits and growth continue unabated um and you know they, they don't really care who gets hurt along the way and that's that's how you get right, you know, to give right to fascism. That's not to engage in the sort of hysteria. There's a certain kind of like anarcho-liberal, <laughs> you know, shout calling everything fascism. But I, I genuinely mean that as like the signs of collapse are that um, the the blurring of the state and private industry happens very quickly and not in any pretty or nice way. Yeah, I think that's really articulate. <laughs> a very perfect <laughs> summation of the whole matter. Yeah, I mean, you can see it. In Japan, you can obviously see it in the States, like, there is, like, a definitely, like, a clearer movement towards fascism in, like, the the working class, I think, mostly. And it's um, difficult to imagine how that anger and that stress can, like, be relocated towards, like, a more productive, like, political philosophy. Um, I guess we can just hope and do our parts with our little podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Japan clearly has shown a right-wing pivot the last few years of, for one, even, like, acknowledging possibly creating their own military, which has been not the case for so long. But also, I can at least for CPAC, a large group of um, Japanese people were there to put pressure on China. I think it's very important to point out Japan, a lot of the EU nations and the U.S. and Canada are all on the same side when it comes to anti-China propaganda. Um, I think a great example is kind of the narrative around Hong Kong or the Uyghur situation, which is very mm -hmm. complex. And I mean, I've read a lot about it. It's very complex. And I think people don't want to actually fully address it. I mean, um, some left-wing media accounts have actually tried to just blindly side of one side while ignoring the role of like radical like Islamism in the region and the yeah. amount of like terrorism that's happened in Beijing as well as like Xinjiang. Um, I mean, it's just horrible. And it's like, if you're going to have a discussion about any of these regions in China, let's talk about the whole context. Let's talk about the terrorism and the Neo Ottoman empire, like and Turkish ties um, let's talk about the recruitment of Uyghurs to go to northern Syria and fight against the Syrian state for the Turkish state. Um, and none of that's being talked about. And the same of Hong Kong is, 
Um, clearly, there is people upset about some of the policies between China, but the fact that the leaders are palling around with like Marco Rubio and like John Bolton and stuff, that's something to say. Like they're not into a socialist system. They want the same system of n one of the most neoliberal like regions in the world where the rents are higher than um, San Francisco when they didn't get a minimum wage until I believe 2008 and it's less than San Francisco. Like people are living in like shanty huts. It's horrible. And no one wants to talk about that. Yeah, I, I would hasten it. Hey, oh, sorry, I just I would I just want to hasten <laughs> to add. I mean, just be, because it inflames people's passions, right? So much to, um, you you know you you can open YouTube and hear many people screaming about the the Uyghur genocide or whatever. I, I would say that um, I, at least for me, just to distance myself from Sam, <laughs> um, you know, I'd like the thing is to 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 actually even deny the truth of any of that is very separate from the claim of how would you know if it was true, right? Because there is there is no objective reporting on this, right? And you do, you aren't you are seeing it filtered through a very specific exactly. American media perspective. Um, so I, I just want to at least say, like, it's not, I, I personally don't even, like, I'm kind of agnostic on this question. I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Oh, yeah, I wasn't saying that. Yeah, either. no, I, yeah. I know you. I just like, I just like to add, because we, we get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so do we. Yeah, but I completely agree with the notion that we have to be, like, cautious and, like, reading through narratives of it, because the media reporting around it is so filtered as to put pressure on China, like, from the states and from other, like, EU nations, that... Um, now it has trickled down to the point that like TikTok users are like engaging in discourse about it. Like, how the fuck does that happen? Right. So I've seen actually a lot of videos where people have been like doing like cooking videos and then just talk about like bigger genocide or whatever. And I they don't offer never offer any evidence. Um and it just it seems to be just buying into narratives without ever thinking for oneself, which I think is a lost art among Absolutely. the liberal left. Like people don't want to think for themselves. So like, oh, um, are the New York Times lied about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? But suddenly I'm going to listen to everything they say for like anything else regarding the countries under the boot of like U.S. imperialism. And I don't buy that. I want to actually do my own research and like not just hastily buy into narratives because that's not how you form like a concise opinion especially as a marxist when you know capital will spread whatever propaganda they want to subvert any worker or independent state movement yeah that's the entire praxis of these imperialist states so <laughs> right uh, imperialism high, highest stage of capitalism maybe can we also talk about like the chinese tiktok streaming into tiktok <laughs> and like yeah <laughs> how amazing like the fashion is like I've seen some gay, gay gay Chinese TikTok is hot. Like yeah, like I had no idea. I just cause I think the mindset of China is, oh, they all look the same and they're all like these like frail like Asian people and like the nineties. It's 90s simply untrue. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, but they're all like jacked and they dress like supermodels and I'm like, holy fuck! Is that, is like, that, have you been to China? <laughs> I haven't been to China, but I have a lot of um, friends from China who uh, were international students when I was at university. So I keep in good contact with a bunch of them and one of them just went back to her home in Chengdu and I swear to god like that bitch was going to be an idol from like day one like <laughs> always dressed like literally dressed for the runway uh she 
was basically like a little bit of a TikTok star on her own. Um, and she had like 45 boyfriends at once at like any given moment. <laughs> so that's my main okay. exposure. Yeah, I, I, so, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I went, I went to, to China and, um, spent, I spent a couple of weeks there. So not, not very long. I'm not, no expert here. I'm not pulling a Thomas Friedman <laughs> only to say that, I mean, the, um, the level of development, and this was about, I want to say 2010, 2011, something like that. I mean, the level of, um, yeah, development, um, street fashion, the availability of consumer goods and, and, you know, luxury and comforts was, yeah, it was incredible. And, um, there were some gay, uh, grad students there. who was, I was, I was there, I see, hanging, hanging out with some grad students, um, who were my sort of my chaperones and, um, um, guides. Yeah. And yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's a robust, um, and plentiful gay life. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to recommend it. I, I don't think, I, I think, you know, if I, if I had to flee the U.S. due to climate catastrophe or war, I think I'd be pretty happy to wash up in a in a major Chinese city. I think I, I think I could have a pretty good life, personally. Yeah, I think so. The I think that the gay culture is something that's actually like really strong in China and has like a, a lot of its own like own language, and it's even like expanded far outside of like the gay culture. And now like uh, boys love like internet content, you know, comics and games and everything. That's like really popular with the heterosexual population too, which has like its problems here and there as well. But like <laughs> that whole like artistic movement is like very prominent throughout Asia, but especially in China. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of the gay discourse around China is ignored because under Maoist rule, like the laws were against um, homosexuals and at clearly had to do with the time being and like the situation in the country. Most of them were like rural farm workers. Right. They weren't a developed industrialized nation, which I think is important for a gay identity and gay rights movement. Um, actually from my little like sub series of Kayla Archipelago, the next episode is China. So I've been starting to look into that more, but there's been much more focus than people think of the Chinese state talking about possibly advancing gay rights and gay marriage. And they actually, in the Chinese state media, posted about Pride on their forums, which is like groundbreaking, um, especially when you recognize this is a minority and a country is trying to also rapidly improve the standards of everyone, but also spent the time to at least acknowledge the issue, which I think many countries haven't even done yet. So it's like... Well, I mean, there's, there's also plenty of... Um states in eastern asia that are rapidly capitalist right and it's not like any of them are uh thailand pull, pulling a, pulling ahead on um sort of gay rights oh, right? God, so this no. is the problem is people no people like to engage in a, a sort of an easy like well it's the repressive authoritarian communist party it's like well no i mean there's yeah, this historical development that leads not. to all of this. <laughs> right. Like, I'm out here, I can't get a spousal visa if I ever want to get married to my faggot boyfriend in Japan. Like, I'm going to always, I'm uh, always going to have to, like, labor here if I want to stay here. So, we'll... See, this is the, the, the true, truly the, um you know, the, wor the working class are repressed. <laughs> yeah, well, on that beautiful note, uh, how about we take a quick break? Cool. Sure. <laughs>
are back. Welcome back. Uh, during the we're break, we were just talking about how I'm going to get canceled for not only having the two most controversial white gay communists on Twitter on my pod, but also our uh, beliefs on China now. So can't wait for that. Yeah. What's been I love, like I love the, that for us. What's been the most extreme like cancellation y'all have faced so far? Um, I think it's when we had either Caleb Malpin on. And he was called like a tanky knots ball a turf. Turf, yeah, it was a um, homophobe as well. I think they called him homophobe. You know, for going on a gay podcast. Well, he's, well, he's on a podcast called Twink Revolution. Wow, yeah, he's literally posted. He loves and us. like kind of goss- gossiping, gossiping with the gays for sure. <laughs> like he's he's a straight, he's a straight man, but he can he can hang with the gays for sure. But then also, um, Anna Kachian from the Red Scare podcast. <laughs> oh, she dream said guest. something that. <laughs> I know, right? Well, yeah, be careful what you wish for. But um, <laughs> she said something that people took as um, turfy, and people lost their fucking shit. But like, not, not many, honestly. No, it was like the same 15 people. We we we've, we've been lucky, and I, I I'd like I don't I don't want to you know um, I can I can I can fall into self pity occasionally. I think we can we can handle robust criticism. Um, it's when shit gets a little uh, hyperbolic in terms of. Just right. people just throwing throwing kind of names around. I mean, calling us names, and um, you know, we we were. It, it's sort of funny. Yeah, we got called um, uh, transphobes for a week, uh, <laughs> and then we got called swerfs for a week. I yeah, haven't we even heard of that up. before. What is a swerf? So it's a sex sex worker exclusive radical. Feminist. Oh my god! Um, please, we had a trans um, <laughs> sex industry survivor on who we booked before the controversy happened of being called turfs. Um, <laughs> And we had her on like a few days later and everyone's just like, oh, well, you're swerfs now. And it's like, this woman survived the sex industry. Yeah, and she's yeah, like, it's a, it's, a, I mean, she, she is incredibly, it's Esperanza Fonseca is her name. And she is, yeah. she's, she's, uh, she's a Marxist and uh, genuinely one of the most um, incisive and, and kind of uh, impressive people I've ever met. Right. I, um, I, 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 I stan. Yes. <laughs> uh, stan. But, but. Yeah, but 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 like um yeah, that the the problem is what you, what you'll kind of always get I think is a um well, two two brands of hate. One is is simple um resentment and and jealousy. And I, I say that without any conceit. I mean, there's just no, there's people it, it who totally kind of go real. Yeah, no, you you I'm, I, like you 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 get it, I'm sure. And it's it's um no, it's the people who are like damn, I you know, somebody's gone and done a Marxist gay thing and built a little bit of a media presence out of it <laughs> damn i wish like why, why are people paying attention to them and not me and you that's that's where i think we get the most vitriol from honestly it's mostly like alleged marxist or left-wing gays who are the ones who are the most vitriolic Twinks, particularly yeah. they don't like us bustling in on the twink label they lose um, their shit it's horrible yeah. so that's where we get the most of them and then there's a bit of like honestly there's people who will on a single issue get very animated and try to sort of tar us as uniquely about that issue when I mean, we're, we're kind of, we're sort of nerdy debate nerds or whatever, where it's sort of like, <laughs> I know, giant lib brains in that we, we genuinely, I think, do value a, a range of perspectives and, and talking to different people with very different perspectives. And we, we have. And so yeah. you will get hate on one of them. But the problem is we're like, well, you know, we had a guest on like a month before who was saying exactly the opposite <laughs> and we're still nice to them. Like, we're yeah, they called, polite. They called you, um, Dave Rubin, <laughs> but like, we actually have opposite opinion people on like. Uh, with the sex work controversy, um, our most recent guest, um, Esperanza, she opposes the prostitution industry, which like 
um, I side more with. But we also had um, Matt Muck, who's a gay porn star on. And an escort as well. An escort. Yeah. And he said different things. And um, people were like, oh, well, you're clearly one-sided. And we, he actually commented yeah, on Matt, that. The good, Matt, good guy, <laughs> Matt Muck, who was, was a, a, good, a good friend of the pod yeah. and a one, wonderful person, kind of came to our rescue and was like, yo, I'm a sex worker. Like... Why are you like? Why are you doing this? Like these are my friends. Go away. Yeah, fuck he, off. He, he saved. He saved us. Thank, thanks, Matt. Yeah, I mean it, the thing is, is just that if people want to be angry, they can comb through however many hours of content they want, like find something to like frame you for out of context, and like that's that. No, they they absolutely do, and um, so we 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 kind of published. Uh, we we moved into publishing at some point because I honestly I was kind of sick of the fact that to simply screenshot the name of a guest and then never listen to the podcast you can kind of you can infer a lot um you can get a lot of likes that way especially post bernie um i think so much of the discourse was so toxic and nihilistic we were like we actually want to advance opinions in a written format that's much easier to understand valuing long form and so the funny thing about publishing long form is some of the stuff we published is like so wholesome and heartwarming and yet we sort of just get tarred with all sorts of hilarious labels class reductionist or whatever like it's like we we published a thing about um drag drag queen and queer communities in alaska mm-hmm. the other day which is you know very class reductionist <laughs> <laughs> look at us look at us ignoring identity and ignoring you know <laughs> love it it's so sweet though <laughs> yeah it's nice you gotta love the haters like honestly I've, i um i some days i just i just wish for a better brand of hater because they're not they're yeah. not the best, honestly. They're not. They're not really putting the effort in. I feel like <laughs> so many ways to critique yeah. us, but they don't really. They just go for the the lazy, the lazy angle. How unfortunate. Well, nothing can get you quite canceled like being a leftist, because the left will always find a way to eat itself. So, just <laughs> how it works. Um, and I also think that perhaps one of the things that maybe not so much anymore, but in the past, uh, that could get you canceled as a leftist is being a faggot. So, right. I'm kind of curious Hell about yeah. what you two think about like the development of um, gay voices within Marxist movements. Because uh, I mean, you look back at the history, and it's not especially grinning. We have a lot of like Marxist theorists, like throughout the 20th century, who um, outrightly decried like gay decadence as like a form of degradation of society and like a an evidence of capitalism at its worst is like flagrant gayness uh how do you think we we kind of (laughs) crawled out of that that narrative yeah so the gay decadence narrative is really contingent with um the soviet union because the soviet union which was the first my opinion worker state socialist state the only gay community that was quite visible as an identity group was tied into St. Petersburg and Moscow. I know they were called something else, but I'm just going to call them what they're called mm-hmm. now. And it was often tied into the petty bouge and upper classes of the former Russian Empire. And that kind of expanded into the rest of the social experiments. I mean, we saw it in now China and the Eastern Bloc and even in Cuba for a bit. Um, but I think once these the nations developed... Um, they kind of recognize this isn't tied into capitalism, but it's instead an innate um, aspect of human nature and um, same-sex attraction is natural in the human discourse. Um, clearly, Stalin had different things, but there was a whole 
tie into like World War II and like the lost labor force and wanting to build up a labor force through heterosexual procreation. Um, it's all material. It's all historical. So, I, I mean, the, the other thing to remember always is that um, what, or, or sorry, the trap not to fall into is to look backwards with our, our 2020 understanding mm-hmm. <laughs> of human sexuality, of, of identity, of human relations, of the dignity of people, and, and what human flourishing can mean in 2020, and simply cast our eyes back and go, those guys, bad, 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 bad. Yeah, you have to like, look with context. Um, you know, right, and, and, and you, you would have to, if you, if you want to critique the Soviet Union in, say, you know, 1917, 1918, <laughs> right, um, on its treatment of, of the gays um, broadly, you, you would have to then point out which state at that time was treating gay people with any dignity. Right. Zero. Um, <laughs> right. And so, and so, so like, yes, we can condemn it, but, but you also like, and, and it's, it's I don't, you know, what, what aboutism is always a charge leveled against so many people talking about this issue. But I, I simply have to remind people um, just cause I'm, I'm a little older uh, in 2003 in, I believe, 15 states of, of these United States, you could be uh, prosecuted for s- homosexual sodomy. Yeah. Um, that, which is the yeah, same so, policy that, so, had, so, like, uh, that Mao had in China when they were developing during the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, but the funny yeah. thing is, China, Russia... They got rid of it first. Eastern Bloc. Yes, they did. Right. Cuba. Um, Cuba. I mean, Cuba had better gay rights than the U.S. did for 40 glorious years almost. I mean, good God. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing. You don't have to apologize for um, they past did. wrongs. <laughs> well, they they did. But yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you don't you don't have to ignore the fact that they're wrong. But also, like, every state on Earth is a result of historical development, and therefore, you you can't just start magically holding sort of worker states to a different standard. You have to say, yeah, that was bad and wrong. We don't want to go backwards, but that's fine. There's no danger of yeah. that. We're not going backwards. We're moving forwards. Whatever worker states we build from now on will we'll be armed with the knowledge of how to treat people who are different in sexual, mm-hmm. romantic, or gender roles uh, differently. I think it's interesting yeah. because um, basically the way people have perceived like any kind of like gayness or queerness like throughout history has like been through like media and art mostly. Um, I mean, you look at, like, mm-hmm. all depictions of gay people, like, from before the 20th century, uh, and you get, like, folks like Oscar Wilde or, like, <laughs> any of the Greeks, basically. And so people's, like, image of, like, gayness was really centered around, like, you know, very bougie imagery. And it, like, seemed to be, like, kind of that, like, decadent force of capitalism. But now, like, in, like, the past... 20 years, maybe 30, we're kind of getting an image of um, gay people like that's more based around like the working class. And I think like the eroticized like gay image has like kind of shifted as well from perhaps like that beautiful like Greek sculpture to now it's like a construction worker. Like the entire like image has shifted there too. Yeah, we we finally have the perfect um, proletarian worker image of a what a, what a gay man is. It's the Elizabeth Warren voter. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> He's joking. Um, but no, you're so right. Um, I think this is why um, on the Twink Rev project, I launched the Gay Log series is I wanted to kind of look into how did socialist nations actually deal with the LGBT question? 
and we see actually most often they were much better than what were told in the media narratives. And in many cases, I would argue are more advanced. I mean, I just did the GDR, like German Democratic Public, and they had the media and like state movies produced to promote um, LGBT equality. They had the therapy institutions um, promote LGBT equality. They had anti-discrimination policies passed before the 2000s. Um, they had trans people could get surgeries for free as long as they were 18 above. Mm-hmm. They could adopt. Some actually won custody of their children divorce from like their cisgender partners, which is like, could you imagine the U.S. doing that? No. Do, you, do you think 2000? that still happens today? <laughs> no, it's it's crazy. Um, even like um, Cuba, Cuba's often, I remember when I was a libertarian, I was like, well, Cuba was mean to the gays. And it's like Cuba has free surgery for trans people. Um, they've discussed the gay marriage question and um, for quite a while. They have free prep. They have free prep. Amazing. <laughs> like <laughs> um, these countries, even like um, the Soviet Union, right when it started, was one of the first nations to decriminalize um, homosexuality. And many gay and lesbians supported the Soviet revolution for liberation. They did it for almost every social revolution I've looked into so far. Because they saw it as a way to liberate them, not just materially, but also as a minority group. Like, um, there's even um, the people like the the Cambridge Spiring, uh, famously, who are in the UK. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there were a bunch of gays at like Cambridge University, sort of posh gays, um, who all well, those who I think escaped uh, went to the Soviet Union and sort of lived their lives out there. I mean, this, this was, it was not regarded as a place particularly hostile to even sort of open or, or flagrant homosexuality necessarily. Although the association with bourgeois decadence, I mean, is, is um, kind of tied into a bunch of notions of masculinity and, and of um, a particular connection to a development of a, a homosexual identity in general. Like it wasn't, I mean, the, the, the development of the idea that there was a strict ontological category called homosexual, and these are people who exclusively are interested in men, and they, they are to be gay, right, is a relatively recent invention. Absolutely. Right? And it's been a lovely one in terms of certain, you know, the, um, you know certain rights frameworks or liberally kind of liberal rights frameworks. It's, it's useful, but uh, it just wasn't a thing, and therefore it wasn't a question. The question was whether you were sort of punishing certain sex acts, which, um, you know, as it turns out, many, many countries that we're told are horribly draconian in this regard just never were or maybe they had a law on the books in the same way that many countries have laws on the books they don't necessarily enforce with any regularity also the identity of being gay wasn't even a conception we tried to apply these labels of like transgender or gay yeah but like the concept of trans people didn't even exist until like the late 60s exactly like this is the issue is people try to apply modern conceptions of gender and sexuality into not just the U.S., um, but also to regions where these weren't even concepts like Afghanistan or like um, Latin America, wherever, like all these places, these weren't conceptions. They made no historical sense or like they, they had no made, they made no sense in these regions and we tried to apply them. And even today, like many people who we try to push these labels on, like, for example, the Hijra were like the third gender and 
India, they're like, yeah, we're not trans. Like, that's not really a fitting term for us. We're different. Like, and we're trying to apply these U.S. labels onto a region and country where it's just so different. Right. You can stand, yeah, you can, you, you can say that, you know, in the U.S. with its own historical development and sort of contingent set of circumstances, that's a a rights framework and a set of identity descriptors that work for the people here who've grown up in the society, but it's it doesn't make sense to certainly to apply that just universally around the world. And it especially doesn't make sense to apply it historically. <laughs> no, especially not historically. Right. And I've definitely like experienced this <laughs> firsthand. Um like as a drag queen in Japan, like I know I'm a cisgender man. However, uh when people interact with me, like a lot of Japanese people don't even have like the notion of a drag queen. So they kind of lump all of them together as like okama is the word. And it's like either like a crossdresser or a transgender person or like what maybe Western Americans I think of as drag queens. Um, and the term has like its own function for some people. And there's a lot of people who like live in this mode like their whole lives. But then Americans like think that they're transgender and are like concerned for their rights, but these people don't even identify that way. So it's really interesting how these um, kind of like Western pushes for like gay liberation, like end up like kind of having the opposite effect when they're applied like internationally. Yeah, this is actually a really good point because when we come to the Stonewall riots, which is always a narrative that keeps changing, but like people like Marsha P. Johnson and yes, Sylvia oh my Rivera, god, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Or, yes, um, they didn't identify as trans people at the point. It wasn't, that a, it wasn't, wasn't really a, word. a political identity, right? Exactly, and they identified as like gay men or like um, androgynous or like um, gender um, f- fluctuating people, but um, or drag queens. Drag queens is often a term utilized people who kind of. Um, broke the gender binary, which was a legitimate thing in U.S. context. Um, Marsha Redonchin sadly died in ways that I don't really understand the full context, but Marsha, or um, Sylvia Rivera did later on identify as trans and did hormone treatment. Um, But like it shows how much um, the discourse around gender and sexuality changed in the United States. And, like, I don't get how we can expect the rest of the world to, like, change when the context is so different. You yeah, know and I people mean? really use um, Stonewall as, like, I mean, you've kind of touched on this recently, like, in your own discourse and everything. But, like, there's a lot of pushback from gay men against, like, gay men right now. Like, there's kind of, like, a moralist, like, sex freak out going on. Uh and yes. one of the things people do is they like utilize Stonewall um, as a way to like encourage sex negativity against gay men, um, and say you know Pride started as a riot, which is true, uh, it, but it's also started as a very sexual riot. Like that action unfolded there, mm-hmm. but people want to reinterpret like Pride as like a force of sex negativity. It's like insane to me. Yeah. So this is actually the part. That I've been reading a lot about in American context is the first gay rights organization, the Mattachian, was founded by gay communists in the United States. And in the later movement of lesbian organization, um, both actually had strict dress codes and expression codes of how you should behave as gays and lesbians. They wanted to be accepted to build a sense of support. 
But Stonewall kind of shattered that and everyone who didn't follow their um, gender dress codes and appearances, they were like, the people who were most affected were the ones who didn't fit the binary, the ones who were cross-dressing and trans and drag and were being put into the like the cells, the ones who were being arrested. Um, and that's what started Stonewall. Stonewall was the people who were the most sensitive to hustlers, the drag queens, the trans people, um, really the loop and proles, the ones who have nothing else left mm-hmm. to give up because the world is so shitty to them. And the gay and lesbian movements earlier on did not accept them because they wouldn't fit into their gendered narratives. Um, but they really pushed boundaries that I think really advanced the gay rights movement more than anything yeah, the, else. Yeah, that kind of radicalism in terms of like your personal expression, I think that like re- <clears throat> like remained to be an important part of um like the gay liberation movement, not just for like gay men and lesbian women, but for um trans individuals and gender nonconforming people as they started pushing for their rights. But then when we get to the nineties and uh after the <laughs> Aftershocks of the HIV/AIDS epidemic, um, the gay movement became much more like neoliberally politicized, and shifted their goals to marriage equality instead of liberation. And like now, we have like an entire generation of traumatized like gays who have no idea what to do with themselves. <laughs> to- totally. I mean, it um, it became a business, right, and big business. And the 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 increasing kind of social acceptance for a certain class of gay and lesbian people um, were, were given a, a kind of political access and political influence, whereby you, you can regard it as tokenism if you wish, but it means that people were very happy to um, to be welcomed into the fold. And you had people like Sylvia Rivera, right, who <laughs> kind of had been out there fighting the fight the whole time, who just repudiated all of this and was, was in turn repudiated by mm-hmm. these people. Um, you know, you, you, this kind of your, your sweater wearing, uh, white picket fence dog, homonormative, you know, kind of bullshit, um, just uh, totally rejects the notion that there might be a version of difference or that there might be other versions of seeking a good life. Totally. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think it's all, it's all incredibly censorious and horrible and it's a, it's a new, it's a new Puritanism that honestly the the biggest enforcers of are the gays who have found their version of um, social acceptance within a, a sort of a heteronormative society and frankly, fuck them all. Um, or don't, don't fuck them. <laughs> Literally do not. They, they turn up, they match, match on Tinder, do not Stay fuck away. them. <laughs> well, also we see so much of this like desire to be integrated into the heterodox norms is because of Right after World War II, the Lavender Scare occurred where communist parties and civil rights movements, which had a lot of gay and, and lesbian and trans individuals, um, whether they identified as, as such or not, um, were involved in this as a tool for persecution and like removal from systems of power. Um, and we're seeing it nowadays. We're seeing people like Glenn Greenwald and Alex Morse, um, who are all people that kind of defy what's appropriate for um, heterosexual relationships because they have an age gap, you know, because we're a small minority. There's not a lot of gays in the world. Um, but they're being persecuted as, like, 
center left individuals. Mm-hmm. They're not even communists, and they're being persecuted by the Pete Booty Judge supporters and the Kamala supporters and all of these like liberal, like right wing folks. Um, so it makes sense why the gay and right, left lesbian movement was so eager to be accepted, but also it advanced us nowhere. What advanced us somewhere was being like, well, it doesn't actually matter if I actually fit your heterodox narrative. Um, what matters is, am I causing any harm? And am I, should I be able to live the life I want? Like the American dream should be, oh, living the life as you want. And these people weren't following that. They were doing what they actually wanted. They were doing the true American Absolutely. dream. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. It is very unfortunate, I think, um, to see so many of these gay men as they're like coming into their own, like kind of like initiate themselves in a like a sex negative, like kind of like anti-gay culture, heteronormative like brand for themselves. Um, it wrecks my heart a little bit. I hope we can push past it. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad we're doing the work out here. <laughs> <laughs> no i i agree i mean i i think um there are debates going on currently about um rejecting you know monolithic notions being gay or about rejecting monolithic notions of uh the left say yeah and my my answer to all of that is to say you know honestly if 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 you think there's a correct way for you to be of the left or a correct way to be gay then like Welcome. Tell everyone else to go fuck themselves. You you keep doing it. You know, we will be will be in your corner. This is the issue. The gay identity and lesbian identity and trans identity weren't meant to be like absolutist terms. Instead, they were terms to unite a group of people who have mutual cause. So people who, for example, showed same sex like sexual or romantic interests, um, were all included under the term of gay. And now it's become so, so codified, rigid yeah. and codified that it's like now everyone feels need to create so many new terms which in many ways breaks a sense of solidarity because once everyone is their own sexuality we have nothing to actually unite around versus like oh the reality is the thing that actually hurts us the most is the oppression of liking the same sex so we should all unite around that cause like bisexuals and gay is all have the same struggle in that if you have attraction to the same sex, you're going to face the same brutality. So we should unite around that cause. It's not really about the label. It's about the oppression from the action. It totally that does. Makes sense. <laughs> I just, I think in general, right. <clears throat> like currently we are having uh, kind of a crisis of identity in like the entire gay movement. And it uh, is as, minute as who can say which slurs like who is it okay to say fag or dyke (laughs) and uh, people are very concerned with those issues but then like we've been pointing out it gets to these like wider scale like how do i inhabit like my identity in the social world so it's a crisis of the moment we'll see where it goes (laughs) (laughs) no that's that's a that's a tough one and i um I understand why people might have certain sensitivities sure. about slurs and things like that. And I'm I'm not going to be the guy who's the, the slur defender, but I would certainly say like um, 
part of you know I allude I alluded to both my age and my my long involvement with a, an organized Marxist left, and um, you know one of the things that has kept me going through the many horrors visited upon people, right? I mean, I, you know, I was, I was out in the anti-Iraq protests getting, getting some backsplash of tear gas and things like that. And, and, uh, didn't have any success in stopping that clearly. Um, but, but you, you have to keep things in perspective and say, there are people sleeping outside tonight. There are people dying uh, with preventable yeah. diseases, there are there are people whose entire lives are being ruined by material insecurity. And honestly, is is hearing somebody call somebody a faggot the worst thing that's happened to anybody today? <laughs> Certainly, Certainly not. not. So, <laughs> I you know I, I I kind of I I I would love to see a left that that is is pugilistic and brave and strong. And feels like you know what? Like I can just laugh that off. That's not that's not what's important. You use the wrong words, <laughs> whatever, buddy. I'm way too busy trying to secure a kind of a decent, strong material foundation for everybody. And that's you know that's that's what's important to me. That's what keeps me going. And honestly, if you want to quibble about whether somebody sort of was offensive or whatever, I, I just don't care. There's just more important things. If that's the most important thing in your life, you're telling me a lot about yeah, and your experience what your life is for like. sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so much of the left is often doing the things the right wing could only dream of. It's like attacking people and getting them fired from their jobs for saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. But as like, materialist Marxist leftist we need to recognize as long as you're not breaking any of the actual job rules like what you do in your outlife is not really like an individualist aspect we need to focus on the material aspect ensuring everyone has security which often does result in greater tolerance and solidarity with fellow people like right. turns out gay people housing and healthcare and education especially education shows makes people more tolerant recognize, Oh wait, I actually have more in common with this person who's like, maybe has a different phenotype than me than like these fucking like rich people who are like stealing my wages and destroying the environment. Yeah, exactly. And have been the root cause of like suffering for the working class, the 99% Forever, like. <laughs> well, and I just remembered you. You did ask what our biggest controversy mm -hmm. was, and I think it was it was early in our in our careers, and I think it was a, uh, it was it was saying that I you know I I would, I would still give healthcare and housing and material security to all manner of racists, homophobes, transphobes, fucking Nazis. They still get it. I mean, the universal means universal to me. Right. I I, I will think they're wrong forever, but I. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, that's the thing. I, I'll, I'll, the, the, the liberal notion that we would means test whether you get to be alive in our, in our world is, is horrifying. Yeah, like what the fuck? And <laughs> this is, how could you be canceled for this? That's controversial. That's, that's controversial. Honestly, that it is. Like it's psychopathic to think that even if someone agrees with you on the most principled level that you would wish upon them suffering and death, like. No, like we're supposed to be the, the good guys. We're supposed to be the ones that actually wants to make the world better for everyone, even the ones who maybe yeah. fucking hate us. But I want everyone to rec have the ability to have a nice life 
And I think that'll show in the end to them, right. oh, we were on their side. We were there for their material interests. And maybe they'll change minds like yeah, in the in the, um, wa- in the in the wash, I think that'll work out. But honestly, even if it doesn't, I don't I don't care. I, right. I wouldn't I wouldn't simply be providing people healthcare, housing, the ability to eat and feed their families, <laughs> just because I thought they might like me eventually. I I, I don't right. care if they hate me. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, it's advocating universal. for like the deprivation of those like what should be basic human rights to anyone. Like, is that not rightism? I where are these people coming from when they think? Hey, sure, yeah, like, it absolutely is. You also like brought up the point of decadence earlier on, which like, I think maybe moved away from a little bit. Like, um, like for me and Gian, the idea of like having nice things and living a like what we so-called decadent life is completely compatible with socialism. I mean, so much like this is the issue with the new left is they adopted Malthusian thought of like, oh, we got to restrict the number of resources everyone was using because that's going to actually destroy the world for everyone. But Marxists don't believe that. We actually think industrialization yeah. is good. We think advancement is good. And like, I want everyone to have a nice, I want everyone to have like nice experiences. I beyond- want everyone to have Chanel deodorants and right. a, a, a luxe array of perfumes. Nice wigs. Goods. I yes. think everyone deserves that. Yes, I want that for everybody. Like, this is the issue. It's like, I don't just want people to have like the bare necessities. I want people to have really good lives where they can have beautiful housing and amazing food and like oh, whatever makes people culture happiest. and sport and like recreation, like all the things, family, beyond, community, yeah. all these good yeah. things. They're good. And the Soviet union and so many of these social countries agreed with that. They didn't just create like places just for utility. They created some of the most beautiful buildings and cultural spaces and sports places right for everyone. Like, um, there's a very famous, um, ballerina she was like the first south latin american prima ballerina and she went back from the u.s to cuba after the revolution because her dream was to have everyone see um swan lake and she achieved it the government actually allowed everyone including like in factories and stuff to see this like ballerina show which in any other country would be limited to the bourgeoisie but she got this make everyone see this cultural arts and the ballerina yeah, school. Can you, can you imagine the the government funding productions with a prima ballerina Hamilton. Of, uh, <laughs> of Swan Lake in yeah. factory floors? Isn't that amazing? Like, I'm trying to imagine like anything <laughs> I mean, like the US trying to do that in any like respect. Like the closest we get is like Disney Plus showing Hamilton. Meanwhile, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> well, it's 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 fine. If you if you go onto the um the Affordable Care Act exchange in your state, you can you can use a spreadsheet uh, to decide which healthcare option you can't afford that's um that's almost almost entertainment right <laughs> i was to say gian made us watch um the hamilton on disney plus and it was just horrible but i don't have disney plus um don't don't subscribe for that don't do it. <laughs> yeah i it's have a it. twin peaks on netflix so that's been doing that's been doing it for me so oh, far hell yeah that's way way better and and honestly tells you a lot more about the the american cultural condition Wait, are you telling me that hamilton is not as good as twin peaks i'm shook <laughs> <laughs> well we'll leave it we'll leave it to the listeners to decide yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on this has been a dream come true uh where can my listeners find you uh for more of your content 
Uh, twinkrev.com is where it is, and it's a uh, it's a magazine with a lot of other writers that we uh, we employ to give you, you know, uh, analysis and hot takes. And then from there, you can find the podcast, which is what Sam and I get up to most of the time. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on, and thanks for listening. That's all for today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> <laughs>